that there seems to be this incredible vibrancy and, and urgency and, and wonder and, and almost a consuming reality of the people in the book of Acts in their sharing of the good news of Jesus, uh, their carrying of the gospel. I mean, you, you almost feel like their entire lives have, have been robbed of, of distraction and they are wholly focused on just traveling through their life and, and sharing the gospel and living the gospel. I mean, you you just kind of get that sense from the book of Acts. You get it primarily in the central characters, but you also get it in sort of the, the larger biblical community. And then if you look into the histor- historical context, you certainly see during this time in history that the early New Testament church was fanatical about their, their dedication, their devotion to this reality, the gospel, to Jesus, to what he had done and, and to how he had played out. And so uh, it is a lot of fun to watch, but it's really no surprise in many ways when you look at that because the, the people in the book of Acts are living uh, right at the time where Jesus has just walked on planet earth. He has just uh, lived his life, just died on the cross, just risen from the dead and spent time with the disciples. He has just sent them out and he has just ascended into heaven, right? So, so the, the freshness of that is right there. Uh, the call that they've received is from Jesus directly and being sent out. Now, the people that are experiencing this have seen these miraculous events, and so there is a sense of urgency, a sense of freshness, a sense of vibrancy that is there. And and it's no surprise. And the reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, we have now traveled 2,000 years past those moments, and in those 2,000 years, the message of the gospel has collected some baggage, hasn't it? I mean, it's not the gospel's baggage, it's our baggage. We put it on there, but it's collected baggage. I mean, the story of Christ followers, Christianity, the church, has been so overused, misused, underused, skewed, turned, shaped, and changed, that if you look back over 2,000 years, you could argue a lot against this word Christianity, right? I mean, it's been used to overcome nations, to get rich, to to wipe out tribes. It's been used to to manipulate power and gain power. It's been used by kings, queens, and nations to shape their political agendas. Uh, It's been used by guys on TV and guys off TV, right? I mean, it's just, it is a mess out there in many ways. And and those 2,000 years have collected all that baggage that, that we now have inherited in many ways along with the gospel, constantly having to try to explain the gospel out of the crazy baggage that's been placed on it. And uh, as we have traveled, the urgency and the sense of the now has dissipated over time. I mean, 2,000 years have passed. And so uh, the distractions of everyday life are, are, are so obvious around us constantly. And you and I wake up every day to some realities that are not necessarily uh, focal gospel realities, right? Uh, you got bills to pay. I got those too. You got mouths to feed. I got those too. You got friends to keep. I got those too. And you got friends to lose. I've got those too, right? I mean, you, you, got, you, you got work uh, stuff to try to figure out and you got social networks to try to manage. And uh, if, you, if you're married and you have kids, you got kids to manage and a, a marriage to try to maintain. And, and all this stuff is facing you the second you open your eyes. 
And then you go through your day and your week and there's, there's problems that come up and human beings you have to interact with and somewhere deep inside all of that complicated mess, uh, you know if you follow Jesus that you are supposed to share the gospel. You are supposed to carry the gospel and so you have this underlying nagging sense that it's there and it needs to be done and on occasion you do it. But when you do it, this obligation to share the gospel feels awkward. It feels a little off and a little weird because you're speaking to to someone that already knows the 2,000 years of baggage and uh, you are so busy with all these things, it's not as fresh as it ought to be in you and you're not quite sure how to undo all the complications and so uh, you wait for the stars to align and for everything to fall into place and then nervously step in to share the gospel momentarily and quickly as possible in case it might offend. And that's, in, in honest truth, more of the experience we have in, in our context rather than what we tend to see in the book of Acts. And the story we're about to bump into, the story we enter into as we follow Paul and Barnabas on their journey is going to be a story if it does what I think it's going to do and if it does in you what it has already begun to do in me, it is going to shout through the hallways of time all the way back from 2,000 years ago and it is going to shout to us and it is going to encourage us. It is going to breathe courage back into us. It is going to embolden us. It is going to say to us that calling to the gospel, that vibrancy, that urgency, that freshness is still as, as, as alive today as it was the day Jesus left planet earth and your call is just as critical as it was then and the, the privilege of carrying the gospel is just as wondrous as it was then and, and a lot of this baggage and the stuff that we hold and the fear that we hold is a result of, of just some misunderstandings along the way of how this plays out. That's what I hope this story impacts in your life as it has in mine, because it is an extraordinary story. This was God's intent in using Luke to author this book, the book of Acts. The author Luke writes two documentaries of sorts, one as we know it, the Gospel of Luke, and the other, the book of Acts. He writes them to Theophilus, uh, a person he was writing to, and the, and the book of Luke, or the Gospel of Luke, he writes to Theophilus to say, if you have any doubt that Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus is the Messiah, the creator and sustainer, come in the flesh to live, die, and rise from the dead for us to rescue our souls, restore our purpose, and redeem our future. If you have any doubt about that, allow me to dispel that doubt. That's the, that's the gospel of Luke. It's Luke writing saying, here's Jesus. He is who he said he was. And then the book of Acts is him writing to Theophilus saying, if you have any doubt that what Jesus said was going to happen and the way Jesus said it was going to happen is how it happened, let me dispel that doubt. Here's the book of Acts, the story of the early New Testament church and exactly what Jesus said was going to occur is occurring in the way he said it would, confirming that Jesus is who he said he was. And so th this is that combination of Luke and Acts as, as he brings it together and sends it our way. And our gift is that that has traveled to, th to Theophilus and then into the scriptures and to us as this beautiful, continual experience of observing the life we are called into. So before we actually enter into this particular story, let me remind you where we've come from brief briefly. 
We've been following Paul, Barnabas, and John. Uh, Paul and Barnabas ended up in Antioch, which was a city where there was a strong presence of the early New Testament church. Uh, there was a, a good, solid church established there early on in the story. And, and Paul and Barnabas end up there along with John. And that church sends these three guys out on what we know as the first formalized missions journey uh, that is in Scripture. I mean, this is a church uh, setting apart three guys to say, go out and, and, and go and carry this. And they really set Paul and Barnabas apart. John kind of joined on the team and said, I'd like to travel with you. So they travel from Antioch into, uh, across the, uh, a little piece of water to Cyprus. They're on the island of Cyprus. They preach the gospel there. They come off Cyprus. As they head back, they head north uh, to Antioch of Poseidon, which is not the same Antioch they were sent out of. It's a different city, also called Antioch, in the region of Galatia, which is a little further north. And John travels south to Jerusalem and heads back to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas travel north into Antioch of Poseidon. When they get to Antioch, we were in the story the last few weeks, they, they enter in, they go straight to the synagogue, and they hang out there. They have up opportunity to preach the gospel there in the synagogue and the Jewish people and those Greeks or Gentiles that had gone through the process of becoming Jewish end up responding to the gospel the very first time they preach it. They're super excited about the gospel. And, and then uh, a week later, as they re-preach the gospel, uh, Gentiles, and, uh, 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 Gentiles, also called Greeks, show up that have not become Jews yet and they respond to the gospel. And what begins to happen is that Paul and Barnabas allow the Gentiles to follow Jesus without going through the conversion process of becoming Jewish first. And that doesn't go well with the Jewish people, right? Uh, suddenly the Jewish people in leadership go, oh, 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 this gospel you're preaching that's allowing these Gentiles to just suddenly follow our Messiah without going through the journey of becoming Jewish, getting circumcised and walking through all the Jewish stuff, living under the system of the law, the system of sacrifice and the Jewish system. What kind of a gospel is this? This can't be the gospel. This can't be real. Uh-uh. And they start opposing Paul and Barnabas because they're like, uh, look, they got to do this through the right way. They can follow Jesus, but first got to become Jewish. And, and Paul and Barnabas go, no, the gospel transcends that. And so this, this big uh, reality begins to unfold and this argument begins to happen and eventually they leave Antioch of Poseidon and they move on because the opposition becomes significant. They're in Galatia now. They're moving on to the next city in Galatia and let's open our Bibles and go and see what happens in the next city of Galatia. We're gonna go to Acts chapter 14. If you're using the Bibles we use, it is on page 600. 600. So if you go to page 600 of the Bibles we provide uh, under the seats, you will find Acts chapter 14. If you have your own Bible here, just turn to Acts chapter 14. Now we're going to begin our story in Acts chapter 14, verse 1. They've just left Antioch of Poseidon. They're heading up into Iconium, and it says this now. Verse 1, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. 
So there we see the initial beginning of the story unfolding in a very similar way to the previous story. So you're beginning to see a strategy emerge here. Paul and Barnabas enter into a city. Where do they go first? They go to the synagogue. Why? Because in the synagogue are the Jewish people, and the Jewish people have the most legitimate reason to understand the fullness of the gospel, because as you tell them the story of God from Genesis all the way to the gospel, it will make the most sense to them because they actually have that history. If you do that to the Greek or Gentile world, you got so much explaining to do that in all the explaining, the excitement of the gospel is often lost and, and buying into the reality of who Jesus is is more difficult. So you go into where the most receptive arena is and strategically you preach the whole story there. And in doing that, we saw, see a similar uh, story unfold as in Antioch. The initial part of the story is that the people in the synagogue, both Jews and Gentiles or Greeks who have become Jewish by going through the system of becoming Jewish, including circumcision, are now in the synagogue. They are excited about the gospel. And then, as this is preached and a new town is emerging, here's what happens next. It says, verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. See, what's happening is exactly the same thing that had been happening in Antioch of Poseidon. Here's what's happening. Paul and Barnabas begin by preaching the gospel and bringing Jesus as Messiah to the Jewish people, including the Jewish converts from the Gentiles. They are excited about the Messiah and they believe because the perception is that we have our Jewish world with the law, the sacrifices, and the Jewish system, and added to that world is now Jesus, our Messiah. This is awesome. But the gospel actually says, no, Jesus, the Messiah, transcends that entire world. The gospel is a bigger thing than that entire world, and it's not that the gospel is part of the world of the law, the sacrifices, and the Jewish system. It's that the law, the sacrifices, in the Jewish system are a small part of the gospel. Do you see the difference? And so uh, Paul and Barnabas are going, so therefore the Gentiles, they don't have to go through the Jewish system in order to follow Jesus because Jesus is bigger than that system. And so they come to Jesus and then they learn to live by the commands of Christ because of Christ, not by living in the commands of Christ, they can get to Christ. And so in that wrestle, the Jewish leadership go, whoa, whoa, what kind of a gospel is this? And they get ticked off and they start speaking against Paul and Barnabas and they stir up the Gentiles and they go, you shouldn't listen to these guys. This thing that they're preaching, you need to go through becoming a Jew first. You can't just jump and follow Jesus. So don't listen to Paul, don't listen to Barnabas. And they start stirring things up. As they begin to stir things up, this is the response of Paul and Barnabas. Verse 3, so, there's the word response, so in response to this uprising, they remained for a long time, I love that, bothers to say long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So here's what happens. Paul and Barnabas see this uprising of opposition against the gospel, recognizing that for the Jewish people, 
having lived for so long under the law and lived under for so long the sacrificial system that of course that's a struggle for them to suddenly recognize that the gospel transcends that and that they are part of the gospel. The gospel is not part of their system. And so this is a difficult transition to make. And so Paul and Barnabas settle into town. It says they stayed there a long time. So they are dealing with the ongoing opposition over a long period of time, constantly wrestling, verbalizing, teaching, explaining, unpacking the gospel. I can imagine how many days Paul and Barnabas were having arguments with some of those rabbis. And those guys, man, they know how to talk. You think pastors talk, you should hang out with a rabbi. I mean, it's just like question, 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 question. And so it's back and forth. And so Paul and Barnabas are wrestling with these guys going, no, 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 you got it. Don't you want to no. know? Yes, but no, but you see, but here, but there. And, and back and forth and they're wrestling. But simultaneously, not only are they verbalizing boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ in a context in, with, with longevity to a context, but God is also allowing them in supernatural ways to affect great works that are setting the people free in the city. This little word, God allows them to do signs and wonders. Whenever you go and see signs and wonders in scripture, it's never magic tricks. I'm gonna turn the red water and make it blue. Psh, sign and wonder, gospel must be true. No, it's never like that. The signs and wonders are always redemptive in their nature. They are always affecting freedom. They are setting demonically possessed people free. They are healing sick. They are raising dead. They are doing things that we are incapable of doing in of ourselves. And so the works of, Miracle signs and wonders are works of justice and works of mercy and works of love that are being affected on behalf of the people of the city that bring the very nature of the gospel to life before them. And so what God does, as he's shown us before, is that when he calls us into bringing the gospel to a people or person, it must be a combination of verbalizing, explaining, articulating, unpacking, and wrestling with the gospel, and affecting works of justice, of mercy, and of love simultaneously. In this case, these works were supernatural. They don't have to be supernatural, but in this case, they were. So God affects a world in uh, this place, Iconium, where Paul and Barnabas are doing their thing here, verbalizing and, and unpacking on a long uh, stage with people back and forth and affecting supernatural awesome stuff. What do you think the result of that's going to be? I mean, if I were going to put my money on that and say, okay, I got Paul, I mean, Mr. Articulate himself. The orator of orators. And he's hanging out. He's hanging with Barnabas, the friend of all friends, the kindest guy on planet Earth. And they are affecting supernatural works of mercy, justice, and love. Here's my prediction. Ready? Entire city comes to know Jesus. How could you not? I mean, that's incredible. Let's take a look. Renault's prediction. One, two, three. Here we go. Verse four. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. I mean, I don't know about you, but I find that fascinating. I find it fascinating that you've got these guys in the city, Paul and Barnabas, doing their thing. Supernatural works of freedom, justice, mercy, and love. Articulating the gospel beautifully. And you got half the city 
that is so offended by this, in, this reality of the gospel that they're getting stirred up and poisoning one another's minds and trying to get them out of the city and the other half of the city experiencing the greatest uh, in, encounter of freedom they've ever had in their lives. So half the city's like, you guys are amazing. You're, you're a breath of fresh air. The gospel's awesome. Jesus is our Lord. And the other city's going, get out, get out. And that's with these things. You see, that is surprising to me. Because I figure you bring Paul and Barnabas in some supernatural works, you got a a win-win combination. You can't lose with that. And yet 50% of the people don't play. Watch this now, it gets even better. That 50% or whatever the percentage was, the city divided. Verse five, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers. And that's a big pocket in the city. To mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to two other cities that are also in Galatia, cities of Lyconia, which are part of Galatia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So here's what's happening. Paul and Barnabas show up in Iconium, and I see a pattern emerging, don't you? Just like Antioch of Poseidon, they go in, they preach the first time in the synagogue, great response. Then the Gentiles come in, and the Gentiles get to skip the Jewish system, the system of the law, the system of sacrifice, and suddenly a bunch of the Jewish people go, oh, you saying the gospel's bigger than our systems? Uh Uh-uh. And opposition starts rising up. The opposition keeps stirring to a point where it gets violent, and Paul and Barnabas have to leave the city. There it is, same as Antioch, same as this. So if you and I were home, uh, we were the church that sent them out and we got the monthly email newsletter, uh, the newsletter would come with mixed results, wouldn't it? How are things going in Galatia? Well, when we first entered the first city, it went really well, then it started going badly, then we got kicked out because they tried to kill us. Oh, that doesn't sound so good. How'd the second city go? Well, Iconium, we went there. We went in the synagogue. We preached the gospel. It went really well. Tons of people responded to the gospel. Then the Greeks and Gentiles started coming, and the Jews started rising up, and they got mad. They stirred up the Greeks against us, and they tried to kill us, and we fled the city. Huh. Wow. This is Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. I mean, when they came and did their presentation, I put my support behind them, right? I mean, this is the winning team, and they're out in the the Galatian area, and it's not going so well, at least from initial observation. Now, I gotta tell you, part of that's refreshing. I'm just gonna be honest. I'm kind of glad it's not going well for them. Not, not for the sake of Galatia, but I am kind of glad because uh, with Paul and Barnabas, you put a combination like that together. You make Paul an apostle that is sent directly from Jesus. It wasn't the church in Antioch that ultimately sent Paul out. It was Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus. Jesus meets up with Paul and says, I am going to send you to the Gentiles and I am going to be with you. I figure that's pretty, pretty much confidence, 110%. You've got that guy who's the Pharisee of Pharisees. He's memorized the Old Testament. He's got the story of God down pat. He has encountered Jesus in a physical way for real. He's coming to them with stories up the wazoo. And I say a guy that's got that kind of boldness and that kind of authority and that kind of knowledge and that kind of handle on the gospel. And then you put together with him Barnabas. I mean, Barney, the guy that everybody likes, the guy that everybody thinks is cool. You put those two together on a team, send them to any town, I'm going, this is gonna be a winning shot. And to see them struggle at this level is a little refreshing, to be honest. 
Because I kind of go, well, it gives little Renault a shot at this. Because if Paul and Barnabas are having trouble with the town, well, then when I have a little trouble, I'm not going to feel quite as bad if every time Paul and Barnabas entered a town and everybody just came to Jesus town after town after town, that was the book of Acts, I'd be depressed going home and what am I doing wrong? I go to work and I tell people about the gospel and they don't come and I work at a church. <laughs> Think that through for a second. So, on the one hand, it is refreshing because it means there's something going on here uh, that, that is pretty significant. But on the other hand, it, it begs a question, doesn't it? What is happening here? What is, perhaps, shall we say, going wrong? Why is the effectiveness of their ability to bring a city to come to Jesus when they've got works of justice and mercy and love that are supernatural and they've got Paul on their team articulating the gospel in the right context with everything in play? Why is there this reality of half the people finding extraordinary freedom and half the people being so offended they want to kill them? So we might get back together at our church and form a committee or a, or a, a strategic group and say, okay, before we move into Philippi and, and Ephesus and up to Rome, we should figure out what's going on here so we don't make the same mistakes in other places so we stop getting stoned to death. And as we sit around in that little group and discuss, maybe somebody in the group says, you know, we should probably go back and see what Jesus said about this and see if he gave us some clue as to what we can expect when we go into the world. And so we start paging back, and somebody remembers, hey, you remember that story Jesus told about the farmer? We go, yeah, yeah, where was that? It was Matthew 13. Let's, let's go back. So you run back to Matthew chapter 13. Of course, they wouldn't have had that written at that point. Matthew was still working on it, but Matthew would have been probably sitting there, so it worked out really well. Matthew would have said, in chapter 13 in my head, I feel like something's coming to me, and then he would have articulated this story, right? And Matthew, as you're sitting chatting with him, would have said, remember that story Jesus told? Uh, where he said there was a farmer, and the farmer went out of his house into the field, and he had seed that was, that, that, that was given to him. Now, the farmer didn't scatter the seed on the concrete floor in his house, right? He didn't throw the seed at the door. There was some level of strategy to the carrying of the seed. He walked out into the fields. That is the environment that was given to where he needs to scatter the seed. And so he walks out into the field, and he starts walking through the field, and he scatters the seed all over the field. There is this picture of the farmer being strategic on one hand in terms of the field and the seed, but also not walking around through the field searching for the perfect little spot to lay a single seed down and then walking through and searching for another spot. He scatters the seed. And then Jesus says, as he scatters the seed, some of the seed naturally lands on very fertile ground. And as it lands on there, it, it digs its roots in and it grows incredible fruit and the farmer has fruit for the scattering of the seed. But he says at the same time as he scatters the seed, some of the seed lands on a path. And as soon as it's on the path, before it ever takes ground or rain comes or anything happens, the birds swoop down and steal it away and it is as though it was never there. And then some of the seed lands on ground, it takes root, starts growing, you think, oh, it's going to bear fruit, and then the weeds come and destroy it and eat it up, and the seed never bears fruit, and it, never, it was never meant to grow into anything more. It's just right there. It's gone. And that's the life of the farmer. 
And the, the farmer doesn't walk around and, and plant. And then Jesus bothers in Matthew chapter 13 to explain this parable. He doesn't always explain all these parables. This one he did. He said, look, what I'm talking about here is the idea that we are going to carry into the world this incredible reality given to us, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we have been rescued, our purpose restored, and our future redeemed, and we are going to walk into the world with that. And as you do, you are going to go into the fields that you have available to you, uh, fields like your home or your workplace, your social networks, fields like your local neighborhood or local community community or even global community, and you are going to go and scatter this reality of the gospel by living it out in acts of mercy, justice, and love, and declaring it, speaking it, explaining it, unpacking it to people that you know, feeding the gospel out. And here's what's going to happen. As you do it, no matter how well you do the scattering, it's going to land on different ground, and it's going to do different things. You don't know what it's going to do, and you don't know where the ground is. So what you don't want to do is you don't want to walk around and go, eh, that ground doesn't feel so fertile. I ain't putting a seed there. Uh-uh. Yeah, that ground feels a little off. I'm not putting a seed there. Uh-uh. Because I want to find ground that guarantees me when I place the seed in, it's going to be fruit. I mean, I want the stars to align and God to write on the wall, say it now, say it fast. This guy's coming to Jesus. And then I'll do it. But if there's anything slightly off about the reality, I'm holding the seed back. Because what if it goes out and it lands on hard ground and it bounces back and hits me in the eye? See, the farmer never thought like that. He just walked around and he scattered the seed in the field because he knew that's my job. That's my job, to scatter the seed. Jesus actually goes on later on to teach us, look, I want you to know, whenever you are carrying the reality of the gospel, which ultimately, here at Mosaic, when we say the gospel, the gospel informs us, the gospel calls us to do this, the gospel tells us to do that, we, we use the word the gospel to encompass the story of God. The gospel is not a thing, it is a reality that is God. Jesus is the gospel. The Father, the Spirit is the gospel. Our redemption is the gospel. Our rescue and restoration is the gospel. The gospel is the whole thing. It's this beautiful story we have that is real, that is our rescue by our Savior. And so when Jesus says, the gospel will do this, or Jesus says, I will do this, it's the same thing. Because Jesus is the gospel. And Jesus said, look, when I come into the world, whether it is I show up or you carry me into the world, there are times where I will unite the most ununited groups in, 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 in the world. The gospel can bring together the greatest enemies in the world. But there are times where I will divide brother against brother, father against son. See, the gospel by definition sometimes unites and sometimes divides. It is the nature of the gospel. Because the gospel, when it comes, does one of two things in the human heart. It comes and it calls out of ourselves either our own self-righteousness that is a work, a legalism that we will make ourselves right. 
Or it calls out our self-divinity, our self-appointed rulership saying, my story is my story. Nobody tells me what to do. And so for some, it calls that out and it causes them to relinquish that and they go, I don't want to write my story. I make a mess of it. It's really bad. And you, you take it. And I don't, I don't want to try to work anymore. I've tried. It's exhausting. And the most freeing precious, wondrous moment of life is when you can finally relinquish this responsibility of your own divinity and your own story and your own righteousness to God and go, please, just be it for me. But to others, the gospel says, give it to me, and they go, uh, 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 uh. You taken my rulership? You, you taken my, my righteousness? Nah. And the gospel becomes the greatest offense to them. Uh, Peter writes about this in the book of First Peter, he articulates it beautifully in this little passage where he writes these words. Listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Listen to what he says. 1 Peter 2, 4. As you come to him, that is Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So it's talking about Jesus, the living stone that we rejected, but God sent for us. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Jesus comes and becomes the cornerstone to the story that he's building in our personal life and in the life of the church, making us his holy instruments to carry his redemption into the world. And that cornerstone shapes all of our life and it becomes to us as precious as it is to the Father. And we are not put to shame because we live on that cornerstone. And it says this, so the honor is for you who believe. This is an incredible cornerstone. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's kind of an odd statement, isn't it? The stone has also become a cornerstone for them. But look what it says. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. See, it's saying, guys, listen. When you're out there sharing the good news of Jesus, it will either become the most precious stone ever or it will become a rock of offense that we fight with great vehement zeal. This is the nature of the gospel. And so we, we see in the teachings of Jesus the very story we just watched unfold come to life, don't we? The, they went in and what happened? Half the people found the cornerstone to be life and freedom and everything they've ever dreamed. And half the people found the cornerstone to be great offense and started rising up against the gospel. This is the nature of Jesus, the nature of the gospel. And so we are guaranteed of this one thing, that when we go out and we scatter the gospel in all of its reality into the fields we've been given, our circles of influence, that always some will respond favorably. That's, that, that's, I mean, the farmer, when he did his seed, it said, some of the seed, if you're in the field scattering it, is going to land in fertile soil. Ding! It's going to happen. 
God has said to us throughout Scripture, I have prepared in advance these stories for you to be part of. Listen, trust me with the outcome of the response of a personal group you are sharing and living the gospel for. The response of that person, that outcome is none of your business. All you need to know is as you live and share the gospel with people in your lifetime, some will respond favorably. And life will enter into them. Freedom will be theirs. And you will be able to say, I was part of that story. Man, that's exciting. But some won't. And that's okay. That's normal. I don't care if you're Paul. I don't care if you're Barnabas. I don't care if you're Renault. It's all the same. That's how it's played out because that's what Jesus said was going to happen. And something else emerges too in the story. This particular story shows us something else. See, God also taught us that whenever we're doing the work of God, whenever we're living redemptively and speaking redemptively, sharing the word of God with people, sharing the gospel with people, that the word of God never goes out and comes back without accomplishing its purpose. And its purposes are often invisible. Something is happening here in Galatia that is extraordinary, that Paul and Barnabas couldn't have known at this time, that we know because we have the privilege of hindsight. So check this out. This is crazy, right? So in Galatia, it's the first missional journey that they're going on, and they're taking the gospel into a Jewish context with Gentiles, bringing it together, and the gospel is now, for the very first time, entering the Jewish world, bringing the Jewish people into an excited recognition and revelation of their Messiah, then calling the Gentiles in and telling the Gentiles, you can transcend the Jewish system of legalistic law and sacrifice because that system had its place for a time, but it is only part of the story of the gospel You can come straight to the gospel. You don't have to get circumcised and you can follow Jesus, right? That's the gospel. And as it begins to happen in Galatia, the Jewish people are going nuts, going, whoa, you can't do that. You can't say that and opposition is arising. And the opposition got so significant in Galatia that the Galatian people actually sent Jewish missionaries down to Jerusalem to go to the council of Jerusalem and go tell them, this stuff Paul and Barnabas are preaching is ridiculous. They're saying that Gentile people can skip becoming Jews and go straight to following Jesus. That's ridiculous. You guys need to get with them and get them right. And so word goes out to Paul and Barnabas and they get called out of Galatia down to Jerusalem to come to Jerusalem. We're going to get there. It's in the scriptures just a chapter away. It's called the Jerusalem Council. And at the Jerusalem Council, this massive discussion takes place with the apostles and the church leaders. You've got Matthew sitting at the table, James, the uh, brother of Jesus at the table. You've got Peter at the table. You've got Paul at the table. I want to be in that room, man. And they're sitting around and they are arguing back and forth about how big the gospel really is. Does the gospel indeed allow us to skip the Jewish process of the law and the sacrifices and the circumcision and jump straight into following Jesus or do we need to go through the Jewish process to get there? What was God's intent? And they wrestle with this. And in that wrestling, I can imagine Paul up there regularly getting up at the table going, no, the gospel is bigger than that, boys. Come on. Peter, come, think it through with me. 
Jesus is bigger than that. We can't make them become Jewish first. They gotta follow Jesus on their terms and then they'll discover the beauty of the law. We can't make them go through the law. The whole point is that the gospel calls us out from living under the law. We can still live by the law, but not under it or in it. We live under Christ and in Christ now, not under the law. But, but Paul, don't you get it? If we give them that kind of freedom, they're gonna be lawless. No, they're not, I disagree. And can you imagine that going back and forth and eventually through the power of the Holy Spirit, they land on what has truly become the single most important theological understanding of the magnitude of the gospel for our church today and for the church for the last 2,000 years. For it is not by works that we are saved, but by grace through faith alone. Jesus is bigger than works, bigger than the law, bigger than the sacrifices. You see, Paul knew that when he was in Galatia, but he had to articulate that for us. And what was forced in Galatia while they're preaching the gospel by the opposition is a need to dialogue about the gospel's magnitude and ultimately articulate that. And then on top of that, Paul writes a letter to the Galatians, which we're going to get to shortly. And he starts the letter this way, you foolish Galatians, why are you entering back into the law when the gospel's setting us free from living under it? It is in the book of Galatians that we discover the wonder that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. This not of a work of our own, but a work of Jesus. It is in Galatians chapter five, verse one, that he writes these words. For it is for freedom that you have been set free, brothers. So do not go back under the yoke of slavery again. The law is good, but it is not what we live under and in anymore. And it is the book of Galatians that says in chapter five, verse 13, Well, since you are free now, don't indulge your sinful nature with your freedom. What a waste. But love one another with the kind of love Christ loved us with, despite the pain that others have affected on you. It is the book of Galatians that gives us a foundational understanding of the magnitude of the gospel. And we would never have had this book if the uprising in Galatia had never happened. If Paul and Barnabas had seen everyone come to Christ in in Antioch of Poseidon and everyone come to Christ in Iconium, There would never have been guys going down to Jerusalem. We would never have had the Jerusalem Council. We would never have had the book of Galatians. And frankly, I think you and I might have been tad confused about the magnitude of the gospel. God is always up to something bigger than you and I could ever imagine. And so we go and we share the gospel with all of our hearts because despite the fact that many will not favorably respond to the gospel and in fact will be offended by the very nature of what we are sharing, despite our works of love and justice and mercy to them, the gospel will always accomplish its work once we share it. And so we go. When I was in uh, freshman in high school, <laughs> I had just spent some time in our student ministries going through a bunch of apologetics. Apologetics is a word uh, that means defense of the faith. So it's all the questions that your culture might present that would be sort of a, a, you know, a, a, an affront to the gospel. If you're sharing the gospel, they might say, well, what about this and what about that and how do you know the Bible's true and, and you know, I've heard this and that and, and it was books and books about how to answer these questions because we determined if you can intellectually out um, defend somebody else, uh, 
uh, with the gospel, then they must believe, right? And so we, we, we had that, and I was, I, I mean, I'd read a bunch of books, and I was ready, and I, I went out as a freshman into public school to go preach the gospel to my friends, and you know, I, I think I had it down pretty well. You know, you, you make friends, you develop the friendship, you, you act in a gospel manner, you act kindly toward them, and you demonstrate how the gospel shapes your life by your actions, and then when the time is appropriate, you sit down and you share with them the incredible simplicity of the gospel with an army of questions behind you that you know all the answers to because you're an apologetic master. So I went into school because I was confident, man. This is awesome. Everyone believes when I'm done with them. So I go to my first friend. I do all of that. We become friends. He was from India. And one day when the stars align and the ground is fertile and everything's in good shape, I sit down. I articulate the gospel to him. I thought I did a great job. It was awesome, at least as a freshman in high school. We're done. He seems to have a relatively favorable response. I'm going to think about it some. He goes home, and the next day he comes, and he says to me, I've thought about it, and I think I'm going to follow Satan. He says it just like that. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, I thought about it, and I, I, like, this, I like the Satanist thing better because I get to do whatever I want. Then I looked into it, and it's awesome. And so then, as a som- somewhat of a joke, I think, he would bring me books like he got from the library on Satanism and go, it's so, so exciting. Thank you for sharing with me because now I know I can follow Satan. And then he started reading other religions just for fun. I don't think he actually read them, but he'd bring me books, and he'd say that. And I concluded in that experience that when I share the gospel with anyone, I am a detriment to the kingdom of God. I don't only have a neutral response, I actually cause people to go, after hearing what Renault said, I'm following Satan. That was my conclusion. So I stopped sharing the gospel. I really did. I'm like, I'm speaking again. I am so horrible at this that people actually chase after the enemy when I'm done with them. And a big part of why I was so paralyzed in sharing the gospel for so many months after that, perhaps years, I don't even remember, is because my eyes were fixed on the wrong outcome. I was anticipating the wrong outcome because I did not understand the realities that this story so clearly lays out for us. That the outcome we are to fix our eyes on and look for as success in the story of sharing the gospel is not the favorable response of the personal people we're sharing with. Because that is always unpredictable. Always unpredictable. We are never going to be able to predict the outcome because it's not ours to predict. I don't care if you're Paul. I don't care if you're Barnabas. I don't care who you are. You are never going to nail it every time to be able to predict the outcome of a response of a person because the gospel by its very nature is sometimes a cornerstone of life and sometimes a cornerstone of offense. And that is not yours to determine. It is not mine to determine. What we can predict What we can know is this, that every time we share the gospel, the possibility exists that in sharing the gospel, in both living it and articulating it, that there are going to be people that are going to discover life and freedom and light for the first time on the human journey. And that that, no matter what, there are going to be times in your life where that is going to be the result of sharing the gospel. And that's worth sharing it a trillion times over. That you will get to share in what God is affecting as an act of rescue on another human being because you were asked to share it with them. You're not saving them, but you're sharing in the story as God rescues their soul. And you get to go, I was in that one. I was in that one. Man, that's awesome. Guaranteed, because the farmer, when he sows his seed, some of it lands on fertile soil.
That's a good guarantee, because if I was like, you know, you might share the rest of your life and no one will ever come to know Jesus, no one will ever see the light, uh, that would be a little like, whew, I hope I'm not one of those. But you see, Jesus says, no, if you regularly share the gospel, people will respond favorably at different times. Second, when you share the gospel, because the word of God is going out, greater things than you can ever imagine are already happening. They are already happening. They are happening in the people and person you're sharing with. They are happening in you. They are happening in the world. They are happening in eternity. They are expanding beyond anything you can imagine. I've told that story from high school countless times. It is a story that stays fresh in my mind here 20 whatever years later because it keeps reminding me, Renault, the outcome is not yours. Do not be paralyzed by the awkwardness of an unfavorable response. That is guaranteed at times. Transcend that and keep sharing the gospel. See, that story became bigger than I could have ever imagined it to become, just as the story in Galatia became bigger than we could have ever imagined it to become. But there is also a third piece to this puzzle that we've discovered that I think is my favorite piece, frankly. I don't know why, but it just is. Later on, Paul writes to a guy named Philemon, and he writes to Philemon about the faith, and he says something in the letter to Philemon that I, I just find extraordinarily fascinating. In Philemon chapter one, Philemon's a teeny tiny book, so good luck finding it. It's like a paragraph, man, for real. Um, it's on 647 if you're interested, but Philemon chapter one, which is the only chapter in Philemon, verse six, this is what it says. Listen carefully. And I pray, this is Paul writing to Philemon, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Listen now, I pray that the sharing of your faith may be effective, and you would expect him then to say, in the bringing people to Jesus part. But he says, no, in, the, in this, listen to this now, listen again. They may be effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us, look at that, for the sake of Christ. In the NIV, it is translated this way. Same verse, says the same thing, but I just think it, it gives us a slight clarity on what this is saying. Listen to this. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. That's an extraordinary promise. It's an extraordinary desire that as you actively share your faith with others, Paul's prayer is that the magnitude of the gospel and all of its wonder would grow in who? In you that your understanding would deepen of the good things in Christ, that you would have a brighter clarity. I mean, do you wanna live a life where your eyes are fixed on Jesus? Do you wanna live a life where your mind is set on things above? Do you wanna live a life where you're walking in the fruit of the Spirit? Do you wanna live a life where you are captivated by the realities of Christ and the gospel story? Do you wanna live a life where you transcend circumstances because you realize what they are and you're informed by the gospel and not by the circumstances? Do you wanna live a life where pouring out of you is the freedoms that are in Christ and the wonders of the Spirit of God? Do you want to live a life free of the insanity that this planet on uh, planet Earth is? Yes, I do too. And certainly the disciplines of the faith and devotional lives and intimacies are critical in that. But part of that story we discover is this, 
that when you and I actively share the gospel with others, what the gospel is doing simultaneously while we're sharing it with them, creating the possibility of a favorable response into life, light, and freedom for some who you will share with while doing bigger things in the world than you can imagine, it is simultaneously coming back at you and shaping you into a grander understanding of the gospel than you've ever had every time you share it with someone. That's crazy. There is no lose here. When somebody responds unfavorably and rejects the gospel, is offended and throws a rock at your head, it's a win. Because that is irrelevant in the equation for us. That is guaranteed to be part of the story. The win is that the gospel went out shaping hearts. The gospel did a grand work in the scheme of eternity and the gospel changed you just because you actively shared it. So what should we do about all of this? It's not complicated. Get out of here and go share the gospel actively in your fields, your home, your workplace, your social networks, your neighborhoods, your local community, your global community. Share the gospel. It's not a complicated thing to share. I have discovered in my life journey that there is indeed a creator and that he created our human story with extraordinary realities. He has revealed to us his story and our story, and he said he created us for freedom and to image him and to live in the freedoms that he made for us. But we decided to follow our own story and bought into writing our own deal, and in doing that, we ended up chasing the wind like little squirrels. And it didn't go well for us, and it's still not going well for us. And we feel a little bit of purpose, but it dissipates the older we get. But Jesus came to planet Earth to rescue us from that craziness and to set us free, rescuing our soul, restoring our purpose, and redeeming our future. And that story is mine, and I live in that freedom. And even when I fail, I'm still okay. And that same freedom is for you, and I'm excited about it. What was that? Uh, 47 seconds? And that's the gospel. It's not complicated. Go share it. Go live it out in works of justice and love and mercy to the very people that have hurt you most. Demonstrating the gospel and sharing it with them in your actions and your words. And every time you do, great works are being done in you, through you, and around you. This is the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we live in it. And, and if you don't know how to share the gospel, you're like, I, I don't know, that sounded like a quick 47 seconds, but I don't know what that is. There are six trillion tools out there that can teach you. Here's one. There's an app called The Story. The Story. There it is. The Story. It's an app. It's a free app. You can get on your smart device. It lays the gospel out perfectly with visuals. It's so cool. You can memorize it and share it, or you can literally just pull the iPad out. Come here, friend. Can I read this to you? It's so awesome. It's that easy. Go listen to the podcast from two years ago in January called Carrying the Gospel. Uh, we did a whole podcast, a series on how to do this. I mean, the, the tools are out there, folks. You just have to step out and decide it's worth it. I'm gonna go do it because, man, I get it now. I get it now. May we share the gospel every day that we get the chance. And the opportunity, here it is, ready? When you're interacting with another human being, that's opportunity. The stars don't have to align. The conversation is an opportunity. Begin to ask the Spirit of God to use you, to actively share your faith 
so that your understanding of the great things that are in Christ for you would deepen in you and we would live lives of freedom as we affect lives of freedom. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this incredible little story where so much is happening and so much is revealed and so much is unpacked where we get to understand the incredible, invisible, wondrous things that you are up to even when at first glance it looks like we are not doing so well. God, keep our eyes fixed on the right outcomes, not the wrong ones. May we leave the response of those we're sharing with to you and may we enjoy the promise that in sharing we get to change hearts, get to change the world, and our hearts get to change too. God, that is extraordinary. May you breathe courage back into us, boldness back into us, stir in us, Spirit of God, a zeal to walk out of this place and to live acts of mercy, justice, and love, and to actively share our faith with others so that they might know the freedom that we have discovered and they might come to follow you as the gospel quietly does its work in them. God, use us mightily this week in our words and our actions to make you known. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.